Hello, and welcome to this installment of Fitch Ratings' Fixed Interest Podcast Series. I'm James McCormack, head of the Sovereign Team, and I'm joined by Andrew Fennell, our lead analyst on China. So, Andrew, we recently affirmed China's ratings at A-plus with a stable outlook. Can you give us an overview of what the main rationale was behind the rating decision? Our rating affirmation really came down to two things. The first was growth, and the second was policy settings. If I start off with growth, what we had last year in China was growth accelerating, actually, for the first time since 2010. And so growth for the year came in at 6.9%, up from 6.7% a year prior, which is well above our forecast. If we go back a year in time and predicted what we thought was going to be the growth outturn in this year, it, it well exceeded that and actually that of I think most analysts. And actually, if you if you drill into the rationale, it's really because the global economy has been doing very well. And despite these recent trade skirmishes between the United States and China, the external environment is still quite favorable. And so I guess this is really underscored if you look at the growth contributions in China's national accounts. And so net trade, if you look at the 2017 outturn, net trade contributed 0.6 percentage points to overall growth in 2017. And that compares with basically negative contributions in both 2015 and 2016. And so that kind of turn in the net trade position really, I think, underscores the acceleration in growth. It was, it was really the key turning point for them being able to grow so, so much more quickly last year. And against this basically backdrop of a quite favorable external environment and strong growth outturns, we had much more concerted efforts by policymakers to tackle financial risks. Now, I guess the genesis of this change in policy really dates back even towards the middle of 2016. But in 2017, we really saw policymakers take much more concerted efforts. So, for example, at the Central Economic Work Conference that was held in December 2017 and was also attended by President Xi himself, they set diffusing financial risks as one of three critical battles for policymakers over the next three years. So on the back of that, we also have seen a variety of regulatory agencies taking concerted actions to addressing this problem. For example, the CBRC, since basically the beginning of 2017, they've rolled out a barrage of new regulations targeting regulatory and other forms of arbitrage that were being used to circumvent bank regulations. And they also doled out a number of fines as well. And the PBOC has maintained interbank rates at pretty elevated levels. They basically pushed up funding costs for non-bank financial institutions engaged in some of these riskier arbitrage activities. And as a result, if you kind of look at all of these regulatory maneuvers, what we've seen as a result is credit growth slow quite noticeably. Now, every analyst has their, their pick of, of what metric they want to use to measure credit growth in China. But really, it doesn't matter which one you use because you basically come to the same conclusion, which is that credit growth has slowed quite noticeably. Whether you look at bank asset growth, whether you look at total social financing, whether you look at total social financing and you add various other forms of activity that each analyst has his kind of favorite series to add on to, you, you basically come to the same conclusion. And so when we add up basically the stronger growth outlook, and then we also overlay that with the stronger policy focus or the more concerted policy focus to addressing these financial vulnerabilities, for us that was consistent with a stable outlook. You've talked a little bit about growth in 2017, positive surprises better than we expected. So when we take a forward-looking view, what do we see in 2018 and into 2019 on the growth front? For 2018, we have growth slowing from 6.9% last year to 6.5% this year. And we have it slowing even further to 6.1% in 2019. And this is the story we have here is that really if we have the backdrop of tighter policy settings and uh, increased policy focus on containing financial risks, that is going to lead to slower economic growth. 
Furthermore, we've basically had a real estate boom since, I guess, early 2016. You know, the real estate sector in China goes through kind of many, many cycles. I mean, GDP growth itself looks very stable, but if you dig into the, the real estate sector, really what you see is these many cycles of booms and, and slowdowns. And what we had since early 2016 was quite uh, substantial growth in property sales and even property investment. And so that, that had been supporting growth quite significantly over the past year and a half or so. But now what we have since actually towards the end of last year is a quite substantial slowdown in property sales. They're growing under 5% at the moment. And we think that combined with the slower credit growth is going to lead to slower economic growth. Some analysts might, might question, you know, do we really think that GDP growth is going to decelerate as significantly as 6.1% next year in China? And I guess our response to that is, is really, you know, we're looking at these forecasts unchanged policy basis. And so assuming that the, the policymakers continue to prioritize containing financial risks and they don't go back to basically this, the policy settings that we've seen in previous years, particularly since right after the global financial crisis, we think growth will probably come in a bit, a bit over 6%. Okay. I mean, one of the issues that uh, we can't really avoid in China is debt and the debt level. You've mentioned it a couple of times already. So I've got a few questions for you on debt specifically. And the first one is, is there any evidence of deleveraging in the economy? And, and if there is, where, where are we seeing it? So this one is a bit of a tricky question because you get a different answer depending on who you ask. And then, of course, ultimately you have to just look at the numbers on your own. And so I, I guess the reason I, I explain it this way is because if you, if you actually go back and read some of the official statements, for example, in October of 2017, former PVOC governor Zhou Xiaotuan, he has a statement out there in 2017 that said that China entered into a stage of deleveraging since early 2017 and that overall leverage rate has started to decline. But then if you listen to now Vice Premier Liu He at Davos, he's indicated that he hopes that macro leverage can stabilize in the next three years. And then if you then go further in time and you read through the work report announced at this year's National People's Congress by Premier Li Keqiang, what he says is that macro leverage is growing more slowly than it ever has, and that it's increasing by much smaller margins and is generally stable. And so there's really a confusion in markets and, and really, in fact, perhaps in the policy community about uh, what's happening with, with the deleveraging program. And I guess our message really, the metric that Fitch uses is we take the um, credit to the non-government sector and we adjust it for local government financing because of an existing swap program. And I think we come down probably closest to what Premier Lee has announced at the NPC this year. We come to the conclusion basically that leverage is still growing, it's still rising, but it's rising by uh, much more slowly than it has basically since the credit binge that started after the global financial crisis. For example, based on our metric, we have credit growth growing about 13% currently versus nominal GDP growth of 11.2% last year. If you compare that to the year prior, you know, we had credit growth at above 16% versus nominal growth of around 8%. So really, I guess what, what we're tracking is how that gap between nominal GDP growth and credit growth, and that gap has narrowed substantially. And so that, that gets us basically to the conclusion that credit growth is, it's not stabilized, but it's rising by a much slower rate than it has any time in nearly a decade. So one of the questions that comes up in debt is really what's happening with local governments. There's a lot of focus on that. What do we see in terms of the, the risks there? I guess it's important to be clear from the onset that we're not talking about on balance sheet local government debt. We're talking about these body of debts 
that are currently off balance sheet and that are not recognized by the authorities as what we would call general government debt. And these are broadly referred to as local government investment vehicles. And so I, I guess maybe to, to give you a bit of additional color on this, it's, it's better to go back a bit in history. What we had after the global financial crisis was, you know, everyone talks about this large credit stimulus. And some people think that most people recognize that the, the credit stimulus really happened through the banks. But it didn't go into a few large construction companies. It was basically filtered through to the local government level. And something like 10,000 or more of these local government affiliated entities, so entities that are either owned or controlled or affiliated to local governments were created, and they basically took on the stimulus program. And so you had something like 10,000 entities out there doing what was kind of a quasi-fiscal stimulus. Now, a few years ago, the central government did an exercise, and they audited a lot of these entities, and they put some of them formally on balance sheet. And so what we have on balance sheet now is basically what the central government has explicitly recognized as official local government debts. And, and since this time, they've put out some quite clear policies, including the 2014 budget law and a variety of circulars subsequent to this, including actually one even just last week, that, that basically said what we have not already explicitly recognized as local government debts are not to be obligations of the general government and these entities are not to get general uh, support of their local governments. And so we have what appears to be a very clear policy stance that the body of entities out there, these LGFEs, are not supposed to get local government support. But if you look in the bond markets, you see that they continue to be priced basically as quasi-fiscal entities. Now, they don't price exactly as local governments do in the local bond markets, but they also don't price as corporate entities, which if you looked at the policy statements and read them and implemented them, I guess, as envisioned, they would be. And so we have, I guess, this body of debts out there that are still kind of quasi-fiscal entities. And so the markets continue to believe they're going to get government support, but the government is saying that uh, they're not actually going to be supported. And so I guess that gap between market perceptions and what government regulation is suggesting does open up the, the fiscal, the, the sovereign balance sheet to potential shocks. And that's, that's an issue that we continue to follow. So I guess the progress that we've seen has really been on the regulatory and policy front where it seems that there's been a clear direction of policy, but implementation so far has been a bit patchy. Okay, let me ask you one more question on debt, and it's with respect to household debt levels. You just did some research and put out a research piece. What were one or two of the key findings of that report? Okay, I guess if we go back to your previous question about whether China is deleveraging, what's happening with debt at the broader economy, this really connects very well with that issue because we certainly don't see any deleveraging at the household level. What we noticed and when we did this report is that household debt continues to rise very rapidly. Now, it's important to highlight that household debt, if you go back to 2008 or around that time, it started off from a very, very low base because the banks in China, they preferred to lend to state-owned entities. And so they weren't really lending to households. And so we've had basically a binge in household borrowing over the past decade or so, but it, it has been from a very low base. But what, what we're seeing now is, you know, on the back of this uh, housing boom we've seen is that we, we basically seen mortgage rates. I mean, there's, there were a few months last year when mortgage growth was in excess of 30% growth year on year. Now it's roughly in the 20s, but basically we have 
household leverage rising quite rapidly. And now when we compare household leverage to the stock of where it is today in China, you basically come to the conclusion that households in China are more levered than most emerging markets. I think the only exceptions we found certainly in the Asia region was Thailand and, and Malaysia. And that's if you compare to household debt to GDP or even if you compare to disposable income. And so it's households in, in, in China are now more levered than emerging markets as a whole, but they look pretty good compared to developed markets. So we're not quite at the stage where we're ready to say that household debt is a problem in China. We don't think it is. Um, and this is particularly true because when we talk to banks, LTVs on on mortgages look to be relatively prudent. They tell us roughly 50 to 60%, which we can somewhat independently verify. And so it looks like mortgages are done on pretty prudent terms, but the levels are rising very quickly. And so that, that I guess that's really the issue that we're, that we're looking out for. And if you basically just do a back of the envelope analysis and you say, well, let's say household debt continues to rise at current rates, it doesn't take all that long for China to kind of reach levels in the United States or Japan, which are roughly 100% debt to disposable income. So I guess the conclusion we come to is that, you know, we don't really see household debt as a problem today. We certainly don't see it as an outlier compared to the most of the developed world. But at current trends, China could very well catch up with the United States, Japan, and many developed peers within just a few years' time. And in our report, uh, we kind of pointed to 2020 as a year that that could happen if current trends persist. Okay, I want to squeeze in one last question for you on an unrelated topic, and that is with respect to capital flows and the potential for capital outflows. So do you think there could be a resurgence of, of capital outflows this year? On this question, we do have a slightly different view than the market. I think the market is basically coming to the conclusion, especially with the renminbi having strengthened over the past year or so, I think they've kind of taken capital outflows off the table as a possibility. But I guess our, our view on this is really about the dollar and about Fitch's economics team's view on the possibility of Fed interest rate hikes and the possibility of resurgence in, in dollar strength. And so at the moment, our economics team is expecting another six Fed rate hikes by the end of next year. And that, that is higher than what interest rate futures markets currently predict. To this, if you add what we expect to be pretty significant U.S. fiscal easing and an expected steepening of the U.S. yield curve associated with the unwinding of the Fed's balance sheet, I guess we think all of these, if you add all these developments together, we think they're pretty consistent with a bit of U.S. dollar strengthening. And so if you go back in time, you know, capital outflows really didn't become an issue in China until the middle of 2014. And and, and they really lasted until the end of 2016. But if you look at that period of time, historically what we've seen is that U.S. dollar strength tends to put pressure on the renminbi, uh, and it also is associated with capital outflows. And so if you subscribe to our view on basically the U.S. dollar and, and on our U.S. monetary policy view, then I, I think that you could very well have another bout of capital outflows, um, either this year or perhaps uh, early next year. Now, you know, I guess it's important to caveat here because China's external balance sheet is still very strong. We have reserves at in excess of $3.1 trillion at the moment, and we do think that the authorities' capital account measures have been quite effective. You know, even if we do get another bout of capital outflows, uh, we don't really think that that would have rating implications, and, and we don't really think it would be near the levels that we saw in 2015 or 2016. But I guess we also want to underscore that we really don't think this capital outflow story is over. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much, and thanks everyone for listening.